Thank you. Um, Let me pray for us. Father, as we read and begin to see Paul's experience, um, Lord, please would you help us listen to what you have to say to us this afternoon. Please would you help us to understand it. And please would you help us to enjoy the gift of grace because of it. Amen. Amen. If you were here last week, um, then there was, you'll remember, there was lots of negative chat about the law. If you weren't here, or to jog your memory, um, we read lots of kind of negative things about God's law. We read that we need to die to it. We need to be released from it. We read that it once bound us, and that in it we only bear fruit for death. We talked about the frustration it brings. We talked about the cycle of failure. We thought about how that played out through the Old Testament. And if at any point last week you thought, hold on, hold on a minute. Look, I know Jesus came as the fulfilment of the law. I know Jesus was better than the law. I'm sure that Jesus is the ultimate solution. But is the law really that bad? Well, I think that's the right reaction as we read the first few verses of Romans 7. I think that's potentially the, the reaction Paul expects. Do you see what he says next in verse 7? He continues as though that's what's in the reader's mind. Remember we saw last week Paul made those kind of absolute statements. They were categories. When you were in the realm of the flesh... You bore fruit for death. And having been released from the law, you serve in the spirit. They're absolutes. Describing what it's like without the spirit in you. You cannot produce fruit for God, but only for death. But with the spirit in you, you can produce fruit for God. They're kind of absolute. Theological statements, they're really helpful to help us understand. But now, Paul, he begins to explain his personal experience. You see that as you look down, it's a very personal account. I wouldn't have known. I was alive. I found this. I did that. It describes Paul. And you see in verse 7, He says, I would not have known. It's both deeply personal and experiential. It describes what Paul found, how he experienced it. And that's really important for us to notice as we read the next few verses. Because it helps us out in what we read in some of maybe a few tricky sentences later on. But what's his big question in verse 7? Is... The law sinful. Look down again. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Maybe that's a question you had last week, sitting, listening. Is the law in itself the thing that was wrong? After all, isn't that God's good design? Isn't that God's way for mankind to flourish in his world? And we're going to see that Paul wants to absolutely affirm that God's law is objectively good. And yet, 
as he made clear last week, he describes in his experience this week, it does nothing for our position before God. It does nothing to help our status before God. One writer has described as he's looked at these verses the confirmation and aggravation of the law. Now, those two words aren't words that I use very often, but we're going to have a look at why he uses those two words to describe what's going on in these verses. And as I certainly don't use them very often, let's just clarify what we mean by them. First, there's confirmation. Um, At home, we've been watching a little bit of Clarkson's Farm. Anyone uh, watched a bit of Clarkson's Farm? Yeah, a few nods, okay. Good, I like it. Jeremy Clarkson, as ever, plays on being pretty brash, uninformed about lots of things, but pretty strongly opinionated. And he uh, tries all kinds of endeavours down at Diddley Squat Farm. He has bought about a 1,000 acres of farmland near Chipping Norton, And uh, this is what one writer writes on Rotten Tomatoes about the show. What could have been just a different setting for what has become Clarkson's now trademark boorish insolence, incompetence and indifference to others is instead surprisingly insightful and just occasionally introspective. That's pretty harsh, but there's a bit of grace there. Um, But as I've watched, what I've been so amazed by are what happens on a farm, if it's anything like an accurate depiction of what goes on in local farms, it's amazing just how many external bodies have to come into the farm to enforce the law on certain things, to regulate farming. There's all kinds of people There's people to look at the badger sets, people to check the water runoff, people to check the calves, people to look for diseases, people to regulate parking, people to enforce light pollution rules. And inevitably, at Diddley Squat Farm, they they come onto the farm and they confirm that what Jeremy is doing, well, he often shouldn't be. They um, come on, they look at what's going on, they give it a name, and they give it a category. Jeremy's often doing something wrong, but when the agency of some kind comes onto the farm and gives it a name, explains the legislation that surrounds it, and then he continues to do it, that's confirmation. It confirms what is going on on the farm. He might have unwittingly been building a, a car park that he thought... He could do what he wanted on his lands. But the moment he's made aware of the fact that there is legislation that surrounds it with a visit from whoever it is, that confirms then a deliberate act of disobedience. That's confirmation. And we'll see in uh, the verses in a few minutes. The second word, aggravation. Aggravation is when something of the actual ruling provokes the person to actually knowingly do what they had done before. 
to continue or even to go further. So when Jeremy Clarkson submits planning permission to do something on the farm, thinking that it's all going to go through okay, when he's not considered something, something else that someone might say, that's one thing. But when the letter of the law is enforced, he's made aware and he's aggravated by the enforcement of the law and so in typical Jeremy Clarkson style he plows on anyway or he tries to get round it some way that's aggravation that's the aggravation of the law so confirmation and aggravation let's see how they play up in the text look at verse 7 this is confirmation nevertheless I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet do you see what's going on the law only confirms what is going on in the human heart it gives it a name it gives it a category you see what he says I wouldn't have known what sin is not because he wasn't doing it but because he was doing it so unwittingly In Jeremiah 17, God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's like our hearts, in their state, before trusting Jesus, before having the Spirit in us, they're so broken we can't understand even what is going on within them. Without the confirmation and the category of God's law that exposes what we really like. But still, without, I'm going to leave it there because it'll blow again. But still, without the Spirit in us, we still have no power. We might recognise it, it might be confirmed in us. But without God's Spirit to change us, there'll be no change. So second, let's look at aggravation. Verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Do you remember last week I shared the picture of the speed signs which display your uh, speed as as you approach them? You probably noticed as I uh, talked about them last night, last week, I had no idea what they were called. I struggled for my words quite a bit. They are, in fact, as I looked up this week, called radar speed signs. Um, Just give me a little wave if you've noticed you've driven past one this week. Just thought, ah, okay, that's well over 50%. That's good. They afford you the opportunity to indulge in breaking the law. I've had a few conversations about that this week. One member of town church told me, I won't name them, but they confessed they drive to Stratton Audley and go for a walk around the village. I think just so they can run up to the speed radar sign in the village to get the biggest number they can. As we talked about last week, if there's anything in you that wants to speed, when you see that sign, you're almost encouraged. There's something in you that that says, ah, let's see what I can register this time. That's the aggravation of verse 8. Whenever you recognise something in law that 
suppresses your ability to make yourself the centre of the universe. That challenges your right to do exactly what you want without even thinking about it. You oppose it. (coughs) And unless you have the spirit in you, you always do. But just look at verse 8, the second half of verse 8. It's a bit more tricky. For apart from the law, sin was dead. What does Paul mean? Sin was dead apart from the law? Well, remember Paul, he's begun describing his experience. It's in direct comparison with the experience of sin coming alive in the face of the law. It's not that he's making an absolute doctrinal statement, but look how he continues. Verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Paul's not saying that before he came to know or understand the law, he had a kind of eternal life. He's not talking about that life or life in God, but he's talking about his experience. It's a bit like Jeremy Clarkson building a car park for his farm shop. He didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He didn't think it was that bad, though it it was still against regulations. But he was able to do it with a clear conscience, a bit. But when he was advised of the law, it's like in that moment rebellion, it springs to life. It's then that Jeremy becomes devious and rebellious, just like we all have. Paul's talking about the the feeling of self-righteousness, the feeling of being unconflicted, the feeling of feeling alive, because there was nothing in him that understood or categorised or diagnosed the deceitfulness of his heart. But look at the second half of the verse, sin sprang to life. Here's how one preacher puts it. This is the arousing of the inherent depravity to avert and more heinous activity. It's not that sin wasn't going on before, but it explodes in the face of the law. This is aggravation. Knowledge of God and his desire and his rule only brings rebellion. Why is that? Well, think of what sin is. Just think for a moment, get a definition in your head. Have you got one? A quick, simple definition for sin. Maybe it's your junior church. Shove off God. I'm in charge, not you. Or no to your rules. Because sin is first the decision... The desire to be the centre of the universe, to receive the glory, to attempt to take God's place. And so by nature, before we know any of his rules, we naturally set ourselves up against God. Because we know, before we know anything else, that in reality, God is king of the universe. He does deserve all the glory. We know that. That's what Romans 1 says. We know that even if we suppress that truth within us. But quickly, 
when we get to know his rules, his laws, his commands, when we become familiar with what he has told his people, what do we see they do? They confirm God's right place, the centre of the universe. They confirm that God is worthy of all praise. They confirm that no one else deserves the glory that he deserves. They confirm that the life he gives is sacred and should be lived his way. It confirms the very best way for us to live. And yet, sin hears that. And it springs to life. Because sin says, I'm the centre of the universe. And so Paul, he kind of wraps up his argument in verse 10 to 12 as he answers how the good law brought death. Have a look at verse 10. The very commandment intended to bring life actually brought death. Again, it's important to remember this is Paul describing his experience. In fact, that's probably more clear in the original language. It would read something like this. And the commandment which was unto life, this was found by me to be unto death. It's his experience. You see, clearly in what Paul says, the intention of the law is to bring life. Paul's not blaming the law. Paul's not saying there's anything wrong with the law. Paul's recognising there's something wrong with him. Look at how he confirms this in what he says in the following two verses. First, just jump to verse 12. It was intended to bring life. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Paul is confirming it is objectively holy, righteous, and good. It is the thing that was given to regulate, guard, and promote life for God's people. In all its fullness and its right context, this promotes life. But look at verse 7. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Here's how one commentator puts it that I found helpful this week. The purpose of the law in man's original estate was not to give occasion to sin, but to direct and regulate man's life in the path of righteousness and therefore to guard and promote life. By reason of sin, however, that same law promotes death in that it gives occasion to sin, and the wages of sin is death. Do you see? The law, it confirms, it aggravates, it gives occasion to sin. It diagnoses the human heart. And so, it points to death. Look, let's just briefly look at the second question in verse 13. Did that which is good become death to me? You can see how that question could be asked. The good law, has it become death? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. 
You see, the law, it has a complete inability to deliver us from sin. It's painfully frustrating that before we come to trust in Jesus, the law tells us everything we need to know for a full and happy, enjoyable, fulfilled life, one that honours God. And yet, it's frustrating because it has in itself a complete inability to change us, to bring about that change. In fact, as we've seen today, all it does is it confirms and aggravates our experience and in sin. So what does that tell us? Our hearts fundamentally do not obey without the Spirit in us. Our hearts fundamentally do not obey without the Spirit in us. And so look, as we land this afternoon, if you wouldn't say you trust in Jesus, or, or you're maybe thinking about these things and not quite sure what that means, hear this loud and clear. God's law given to us is good and perfect, but studying it, knowing it, trying hard to keep it, it will only confirm your current status. It will only aggravate human nature. You need a fundamental change. If you're a Christian and you think of a friend coming to faith, exploring the Christian faith maybe at the moment, it's good and right and true to hold out the truth in God's law, but <coughs> expect no change towards it. Because without the Spirit, all that familiarity with the law brings is confirmation and aggravation. So, if you're asking, or if a friend is asking, what do I need to do to become a Christian? The answer is not to go to church regularly. It's not to read your Bible every day. That's not the answer of what to do. Because any law-like initiative has a complete inability to deliver us from sin. Instead, what does Jesus say in John 3 as he, as he meets the man? You must be born again. Here's what he says. The flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You need to be born again. Because if you're controlled by the flesh, even in the face of the law, the flesh only gives birth to flesh. And look, if you're a Christian this afternoon, this can be of real encouragement. Because look at your own life. Think about it. Just for a moment, rule out anything that, that looks like good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, maybe, that we talked about last week. Anything that looks like that that's motivated by reputation or recognition or guilt or duty. Just rule out that for a second. But if you're genuinely moved to desire Christ, 
to love him, to be more like him. When you're on your own, no one watching, no bargaining with God. But you can honestly say in your heart, you want to honour Christ. <coughs> the instinct to speak to God by yourself, the desire to honour him. If you see that, then praise God, because those signs of life, they don't come from the law. They don't come from any law-like initiative. They come from the Spirit. And if you've been convicted of sin, or things need to change, well then introducing disciplines and laws to keep, don't think they're going to be the the silver bullet answer. Don't think that being able to list off God's rules will save you. God in his grace might use them for your good and help, but they'll only confirm and aggravate what's going on in your heart. Instead, God by his spirit, he's writing his laws on your heart. And that means we don't have to be frustrated by the cycle and frustration of the law. We don't need to be people that get frustrated with wanting the glory for ourselves. But more and more, God by his spirit will cause you to appreciate Christ. And so you'll bring him glory. Let me pray.